<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. First, a couple of quick things I want to tell you about, and then I'll be picking up your phone calls here. My rant over at HartmanReport.com is titled, When Will America Break Free from the Clutches of the Grifters? Uh, Donald Trump just unleashed this barely coherent rant about the possibility that Joe Biden is going to release all the archived documents from the White House from January 6th. Trump was president then, but Biden is now, and he controls the archives, right? And Trump, you know, he actually thought he was going to pull off the ultimate grift, which is what, uh, for example, Jair Bolsonaro is doing in Brazil, where relatives of his are acquiring major industries. It's, it's what happened in Hungary. And Viktor Orban has now virtually every major industry in, in Hungary, particularly the media, are owned by friends or relatives of Viktor Orban. Uh, the same thing is happening in Turkey. The same thing happened in Russia. The same thing is happening in the Philippines. And Trump thought he could do that in the United States. That was his whole re-election plan, uh, or, or, you know, his post-re-election plan. And uh, thus, you know, it should surprise nobody that when Trump lost the election, he continued to grift. I, I got two emails from him yesterday. I got one from him this morning, every single one asking for money. And he's raising money. He's raised several hundred million dollars since he lost the presidency. Can you imagine if Jimmy Carter had done that or if Al Gore had done? I mean, it's just it's mind boggling. It was the Supreme Court that cracked open this door back in 1976 with the Buckley decision. You've heard me rant about this for years. Two years later in 78 with the Bilotti decision, they, they said that not only billionaires can own politicians, that was 76, but corporations can own politicians too, that was 78. We had never before in the history of America, or to the best of my knowledge, any other civilized country, said that when billionaires and corporations openly own politicians, that that's just free speech. I got a note uh, this morning from, from somebody in Arizona saying that this um, the front group for the big insurance companies is running ads all across Arizona thanking Kirsten Cinema for supporting Medicare Advantage. Yeah, I can't speak from firsthand knowledge that that's the case, but I have seen it referenced in other places, so I give it some credibility. 
And then, of course, in 2010 with Citizens United, they doubled and tripled down on this. So I think you could safely say the last Republican who wasn't a professional grifter was Richard Nixon. And he was not a grifter. He was just a good old-fashioned crook. You know, he was a liar. He took bribes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was, just, he was just a good old-fashioned crook. But grifters occupy a unique niche in the world of criminals. Um, they're not violent. Uh, but they live and act only to enrich themselves, whether it's money or sex or power or all three. Uh, they're typically high-functioning sociopaths. They sneer at the rules of civilized society. They combine this skill set, which is not all that rare of being charming and being great salesmen and storytellers, with an absolute and utter lack of conscience or respect for the truth. They believe, because they're sociopaths, they believe that they're the only real people in the world, that everybody else is just a cardboard cutout here to serve them or make them happy, and that our emotions, we other people, uh, we're just like shadows. You know, we're not, it's not real. Their, their emotions, their fears, their loves, their hates, their hopes, their dreams, those are the only true emotions in the world. That's how these people think. And because of these, these uh, three Supreme Court decisions, Buckley, Bilotti, and Citizens United, the Republican Party has now become one giant in-crowd of professional grifters, most of them getting rich, some of them just getting famous, you know, Lauren Boebert trying to, you know, leverage her fame to make her little failing restaurant work, or Marjorie Taylor Greene is trying to start a career as a seditionist, or you know, uh, or, or sometimes they're just, you know, hustling. I mean, Matt Gates trying to, trying to, can you say get in the pants of, on the air? I guess you can, of, uh, you know, of underage girls. I mean, this is what, this is, the, this is what the Republican Party has come to. Reagan was once, you know, an, a, an FDR Democrat. He recorded ads for, for Hubert Humphrey when he was running for, for senator in Minneapolis, saying he's helping with the New Deal, he's helping President Roosevelt. That was Ronald Reagan. Then, you know, he, he dumped his first wife for Nancy Davis. She introduced him to, his, to her rich daddy, the neurosurgeon, and who, who hooked him up with General Electric and said, son, uh, you change your politics and we'll make you rich and you might even have a future in, in uh, politics because you have such a nice smile and you can memorize lines really well. Reagan was the first professional grifter, Republican politician, professional grifter of the modern era. Newt Gingrich then followed up, right, during the Clinton administration, yelling and screaming about Bill Clinton, the immorality of Monica while he's then going down the hall and porking Kalista. Uh, his uh, now third wife, back then he was married to his second wife. And I'm still getting an email at least once a week from Newt Gingrich begging for money for him and Donald Trump. And you know where that money is going. Paul Ryan pimped for the super rich throughout his career in the House. Now he's making millions. He's on the board of directors of Fox News, etc. Dick Cheney, he knew that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. But he, he had, uh, when he was head of, when he was CEO of Halliburton, you know, they bought dresser industries. They had this huge asbestos liability. They were looking at, the, at a, a real crisis. So, hey, a little war and, and, you know, one of the first brand new companies to become a defense contractor used to be an oil company. You know, Halliburton invented uh, uh, fracking. Used to be an oil company. But, hey, we can turn it into a defense company and give them billions in dollars in, in uh, defense contracts. No big contract. Clarence Thomas and Antonin Scalia. 
knew that, you know, going quail hunting with somebody before the court, in this case it was Dick Cheney, three weeks before his trial, or uh, letting your spouse take hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Heritage Foundation, as Clarence Thomas did. They knew that if any other federal judge did this, there'd be hell to pay, but they were on the, in on the grift. They just exempted themselves from the Federal Code of Judicial Conduct. Help, they, helped write, they, they helped write the grift with Citizens United. And now it's gone fully party-wide, and it's even picked up a few Democrats along the way. Some guys, uh, and gals in Congress, say, you know, yeah, well, I'll, I'll get rich with Big Pharma. That's like the, you know, the Kurt Schrader sh scam here in Oregon. Others choose to make their money with big oil or big coal. Or they're deeply in the pockets of the airlines or the telecom companies or the tobacco industry or the banks or the insurance companies or the food and hospitality. You know, there's lots and lots of wealthy industries out there or right-wing billionaires that you can be the pet charity for. Some Republicans are even running day trading operations on insider information out of their offices until on this program 14 years ago, Congressman Brian Baird, then Congressman Brian Baird of uh, Washington, blew the whole scam open. You know, they all, you know, like Bob Dylan saying, you know, you got to serve somebody. Yeah, they're all looking around, who am I going to serve? So it shouldn't surprise us that in 2016, the GOP put a grifter up as president. And that he would choose grifters like Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross for his cabinet. Forbes magazine said, literally, this is a quote from Forbes magazine. Wilbur Ross ranks among the biggest grifters in American history. End of quote. I mean, everybody in the Republican Party is either stuffing their leadership packs with money they can dip into after they leave office, living high on the hog, or using their positions to get famous or, or get sex, frankly. And uh, I've been running a contest on this show since 2003 that if you can name one piece of legislation written by Republicans, introduced into Congress by Republicans, passed by a majority of Republicans, signed by a Republican president, whose principal beneficiary was either average working people or the poor, you win a prize. Your choice of any of my books autographed by the author. I'll mail it to you. Nobody's ever won the prize. Nobody ever will. That's not to say that the Democratic Party doesn't have a few grifters. After all, when the Supreme Court legalized political grifting, they didn't say it's only for Republicans. But the single largest caucus in the Democratic Party is the Congressional Progressive Caucus that Bernie Sanders co-founded. And they refuse PAC, corporate PAC money. You're going to hear from the vice president of that caucus in the next hour. He'll be taking your calls for the whole hour, Congressman Ro Khanna. Mark Pocan on this program regularly tells the joke about how, you know, there's three, three uh, pharma lobbyists for every member of Congress, but I have no idea who my three are because he doesn't talk to lobbyists. So, you know, by and large, the Democratic Party is the last bastion of honesty here. But, we, you know, we still have a few problems with people like Manchin and Cinema, who are in on the grift. Maybe the 2022 election will win us enough seats that we can get around our own grifters. I don't know. But we have a big job ahead of us, a very big job ahead of us. And I'm up to it. I'm working on it. It's up to activists and voters, you and me. It's up to us to make this country work. And we have an opportunity coming up in 14 months. So, anyhow, end of my rant. I'll pick up your phone calls. I, I got a few other stories here. Well, I'll be sharing them with you as we go through the day. 
Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's up? Hey, don't forget Marco Rubio. Okay, Marco Rubio only has one donor. Okay, just one guy. Seriously? He's got one guy. Remember when General Motors was having their problems? Right. And um, uh, somebody came in there and, and said, uh, I want this kind of money, and, and Obama gave it to him. He got rich, and now he's financing Marco Rubio. But that's not why I called you, Professor. I've been waiting on this for a long time. I really have. We're going to find out if we got a democracy or not. The select committee, when they send out those subpoenas, who's going to enforce those? Is it going to be the Department of Justice, or is it going to be the Sergeant of Arms? Remember yeah. I was talking? Or both. The Texas government got crazy. Or both. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Charlie, uh, well, what's his name? Charlie Sykes? Yeah, here it is. Uh, no, Rick Wilson. Rick Wilson uh, did this rant this morning, Morris, uh, on Twitter. He said, uh, uh, he said, each one of these Trump crooks will resist the subpoenas. Each one will demand to testify in private. Each one will make spurious claims of executive privilege. Each one of them will lie and lie. F these guys. Don't let their lawyers wedge you into phony courtesies and hollow formalities of the old war Washington. These are the people who would have gladly burned down our nation. They tried. For them, it wasn't a failed coup. It was a training exercise. You know, and then he goes into Bannon and Meadows, and they're still in on it, and they're still trying to destroy the country. And then, and, and then he says, keep in mind the power of spectacle, which is all too often underappreciated in politics. Keep in mind that the Trump acolytes and leeches will plan and execute the same outrage at scale. These are enemies of the American people that should be treated as such. For once, get the taste of blood in your mouth. For one, He's talking to the people on the committee. For once, act like you effing mean it. Enforce subpoenas. DOJ will back it. Jail the obstructionists. Demand candor. Follow the phones. Follow the money. Follow the email train trail. The Venn diagram of White House Trump world conspirators and the angry mob is filled with degenerate and vile humans like Roger Stone and Ali Alexander. Have live hearings. Fill the media void with the Trump mutant parade. Bring in the spawn of Trump. Make it hurt. What do you think, Morris? I think they're no, going to do it. Oh, that brother's preaching in my church this Sunday. All right? <laughs> there you go. Okay, that's all I want to know. And I'm going to tell you something. Now, the first round, the first rodeo, the first rodeo, they have protections of the United States president. That's a bad man when you're in that office. Yeah. But they don't have that now. Yep, there you, you go. There you go. Talk and you uh, Joe Biden is not inclined to give them uh, executive privilege, and God bless him. Morris, thank you. Great to hear from you, as always. Cliff in Santa Clarita, California. Hey, Cliff, what's up? Good morning, Tom. Thanks for that rant on the Republicans' massive corruption and grifting. It's it's really stunning. It really is that, that they're getting away with it. God. Yeah. But to your point, anyway. we have 45 seconds. Okay, um... The, the letter that you've read on air, the Chris Miller letter, letter um, about January 6th and, and the, the, the right. deployment of National Guard, that whole thing. Right. Your program is the only place that I've heard that letter, Tom. Really? I have never heard it on the air. I've heard all these talking heads and, and news people ask the question, what was the delay on January 6th? Why did it take so long and all this? And the, and the letter that you've read sort of backs all that up. It was an order from the Secretary of Defense? I've never heard it anywhere but on your program. What, That's what's, incredible. What's the deal? It's not it a is. secret, Cliff. I mean, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post wrote about it. It's just that, you know, if the tables were turned, the Republicans would be holding hearings and, and pounding fists and screaming treason and everything else. And the Democrats are like, okay, this is one of about 400 outrages. Uh, next. <laughs> it's incredible. Cliff, thanks for the call. I'm with you. So, two quick stories and then right to your phone calls.
Okay, two quick stories, and then I'll pick up your phone calls. The first, the uh, the review, the Arizona so-called uh, <laughs> I like fraud it right. This, this, uh, the the so-called recount of the Arizona race, the draft report from the Cyber Ninjas. This is from today's New York Times. The subhead actually says the whole thing. The much criticized review showed much the same results as in November, with 99 more Biden votes and 261 fewer Trump votes. In other words, they found when, they, when they recounted the vote in Arizona, they discovered that Biden won by an even bigger margin than we thought. That's not going to work well. That's story one. Story two, the other thing that I, you know, this is just like hot news, in my opinion. We have 15,000 Haitian refugees on our southern border. They didn't come from Mexico or from Haiti. These are people who have been in Brazil, in some cases, for several years. They're also much, their skin is also much darker than, than Guatemalans, Hondurans, Mexicans, and so much more likely to freak out and inflame the white racist base of the Republican Party in the United States. Black people trying to get into the United States. Oh, my God, that's even worse than brown people, right, in the minds of these white racists. So how did this happen? How did it happen that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, 15,000 Haitians from Brazil followed a very specific path, a very specific trail, all the way up through Central America, all the way to America's southern border, to one particular border crossing where it was possible to get across? How did that happen? Well, John Oberlin is, uh, actually there's several people tweeting about this, Don Winslow, uh, Arabella, Alt, actually it started with Alt-Immigration, Alt which is their, their Twitter handle is Alt underscore USCIS. Almost all Haitians at the border originated from Brazil, number one. Number two, the Haitian community between Brazil and Mexico shared a detailed route map to get to Juarez starting in June, the arrival was sudden and organized. And who was in Brazil just before this started? Jason Miller. Who is Jason Miller? He's one of Trump's advisors. He got detained in Brazil. The Brazilian government held him for questioning. We still don't know any of the details of it. Was this organized in a way that would be even more of a freak out than, than you know, Central Americans. Was this organized by Trump operatives specifically to flip out white racists in America? I mean, the Republican Party, that's pretty much their base, but there's no shortage of them who are voting Democratic as well. And so, hey, push those buttons as hard as possible. Or am I being paranoid here? Is it just a coincidence that all of a sudden 15,000 Haitians who have been living in Brazil, in some cases for four years, five years since the, since the last big earthquake, suddenly appeared on our southern border? I mean, yesterday I was talking about how we need to be solving, we need to be helping solve problems. Rather than bombing countries, we need to take those resources and help countries solve problems like Haiti and like the countries in Central America. Countries that we helped screw up. We supported the Duvaliers through two generations. Okay, so we absolutely need to do that. But is it possible now that we've got Republican operatives actually exploiting these poor people who have been devastated by our policies just to flip American politics? 
You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Or is that just completely over the top? Was Jason Miller being down there just, you know, as as this all started? Was that just a coincidence? He just wanted to visit Brazil, right? Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Oh, man, what a day. There's so much going on. Paul in Lucerne, California. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I was just thinking, with this budget argument we're about to have, now's the time to advocate for a stand on your own two feet law. That's a law where we tell states you cannot take more money from the federal government than you give unless a federal emergency was declared. That would force these red state citizens to start voting in their best interests. No longer would these Republican governors be able to rely on federal government welfare provided by the blue states. I mean, this is this coronavirus crisis is going to cost us billions of dollars because the federal government wanted to make Joe. I mean, because the state governors wanted to make Joe Biden look bad. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you, Paul. Millions of dollars. Yeah, I, I have been calling for this for some time. Uh, I think we should call it the End Welfare as We Know It Act. <laughs> and just yeah. say, you know, no state can take more than 100%. Actually, my original proposal was 150% of the money that they send to the federal government. But I'm, I'm fine with 100%, uh, you know, unless there's a declared state of emergency. I'm absolutely with you. Paul, thank you. Russ in Hickory Hill, Illinois. Hey, Russ, what's up? Uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks for taking my call, Tom. Before I get to my question, I, Arizona had a poll, Steph said, 68 to 23, the next person that runs on the no filibuster, they'll, they'll support, and they they want her out of the party. But oh, yeah, Kristen Sinema has uh, fallen through the floor in terms of popularity. Well, what I called for, Tom, do you know anything about raising the debt ceiling? 
If they want us to raise it, how does that work? Can we go 10 years, 60 trillion? Or does it go by what we spent last year to raise the debt ceiling? How does that work, the debt ceiling? Yeah, they want us think to raise of it, it on ourselves. Think of it this way, uh, Russ. Uh, you go down to Best Buys and buy a new big screen TV for a thousand bucks, and you give them your credit card. And you go home, and now you've got the TV, and you're enjoying the TV, and you're watching the TV, and, you know, five weeks later, four, three, four, three, between three and five weeks later, uh, your credit card bill comes due that includes that thousand bucks, depending on billing cycles and all that kind of stuff. And at that point, you have to decide whether or not you're going to pay the credit card for the purchases that you've already made in the past. That is the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling is, will the government pay for its previous purchases? It has nothing to do with future purpose, uh, purchases. That is, those go on the credit card, and then the debt ceiling will have to be raised again to pay those off. Um, so it's like what you would have to do is say, okay, I've got a credit card bill for a thousand bucks here, um, but uh, I only have $800 in my checking account, so I guess I'm going to default, or I'm going to figure out a way to get an extra two, two thousand, two hundred $200, you know what I'm saying, or, or roll it into another debt. It's an imperfect analogy, but uh, did I answer your question, Russ? Well, you know, I can, because when I'm listening to you, we owe $29 trillion. Do they want us to pay the whole $29 trillion now? No, no. I they mean, just, you know, they, they want us to. Uh, what Trump ran up. What they're, what they're saying is let us raise that to $30 trillion so that we can pay the bills that we have. And, and let's keep in mind that that $29 trillion, yes, it, it is arguably, well, yeah, the Republicans ran up most of that debt through the, and this was the two Santa Clauses strategy. But not only is that, money that the federal government theoretically owes, although about $5 trillion of it is money that the government owes itself, you know, like Social Security Trust Fund and stuff like that. There's several of those in there. But it's also private savings. And that, is a, that, that actually serves a very important purpose, that you've got states, you've got pension funds, you've got very wealthy people, you've got countries around the world that are looking for a place where they can park money and know that it is 100% safe. They won't make a lot of money off it, but they know that their money is safe. You've got families that are looking to park money and know that it's safe, and at least it's going to keep up with inflation. And thus, we have inflation-adjusted uh, treasuries that you can buy. So the, the, the debt of a nation, I mean, you know, the United States paid off its national debt once, and uh, that was Andrew, uh, Andrew Jackson, you know, the, 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 the Trail of Tears guy. We paid off our debt once in the history of this country. And the consequence of that was the longest and deepest depression in the history of America because there was no safe place for people to put money any longer. And, uh, you know, so we need to have some debt, whether that debt should be five billion dollars or a trillion dollars or whether that debt should be 20 trillion dollars or whether it should be 40 trillion. Nobody knows. Japan has had a national debt that's been twice their GDP, which for the United States would be like 40 trillion dollars. They've had that for 20, 25 years, and it hasn't seemed to hurt them. Um, and the fact that our, our dollar is the world's reserve currency um, it means that, you know, it's it pro in all probability the national debt, other than being a pain in the butt and us having to pay interest on it every month, um, you know, it's not, it's, it's frankly just not that big a deal. As, as Ronald Reagan would tell you, because <laughs> he tripled the national debt. Russ, I got to move on. Thank you for the call. Carl in Sacramento. Hey, Carl, what's up? Hey, Tom. Okay, infrastructure. 
And I'm retired senior master sergeant in the world's largest air force. Mm-hmm. And I spent some time in the Oregon Air National Guard. Right. And, okay, infrastructure. We've been uh, building the infrastructure in Afghanistan and Iraq, but nothing in South America where we're having a huge mass movement of people trying to get across the border. Yeah. Well, and I think the Haitians coming from Brazil, I, I, I'm, I'm starting to align with the conspiracy theorists who think that this was a setup. But we've got a lot of Guatemalans, you've got some Hondurans, you've got a few Mexicans, but mostly it's Guatemalans. And that's because climate change is whacking Guatemala and these family farms are just failing. And who's, who's polluting the atmosphere and causing climate change? It's not Guatemala. It's us, right? It's, it's our fossil fuel billionaires. So I'm with you, Carl. If we're going to be building infrastructure, let's, let's do it here. <laughs> let's, let's, let's do it in America. Let's, let's do it in a reasonable way and, and, and in the Americas. Let's do it in, in, let's help out these countries. China's doing this with their Belt and Road program. They're going into other countries, especially across Africa, and, and building infrastructure. I saw, you know, there were Chinese people all over the place when I was last in, in South Sudan. And, uh, you know, it's, it's making friends for them, and it's creating a world that's less hostile to them. And it's, it's you know, helping country, lift countries out of poverty in many cases. So, Carl, I'm with you, and good on you for, uh, for being a member of the, the world's largest Air Force. Robert in Price, Utah. Hey, Robert, what's on your mind today? Hey, I, I was thinking about this Afghanistan thing and, and the big complaint. You know, they're going to be doing an investigation, and their big complaint is all this equipment that was left there. Well, the way I see it, that equipment, the money for that equipment started out with the U.S. taxpayer. Congress appropriated it. Now, I don't know whether it went to the Afghan government or to the Pentagon to buy this equipment. But either way, the money wound up back with the defense contractors who then turned around and padded the campaign coffers of these politicians. Yep. And it looks like a big money laundering scam to me. Yeah. And so any investigation of this would have to include who got, you know, who voted for that to keep the scam going and who got the money in their coffers. Yeah, Robert Greenwald did a video a couple of years ago uh, that was uh, photos of the mansions of the de defense contractors around Washington, D.C. I went looking for it a week or so ago, and I couldn't find it. I, I, I should ro drop Robert a note and ask him what happened. I, know, I don't know if somebody has said uh, you're invading their privacy and you've got to take it down or if I just couldn't find it. But, uh, yeah, the, that, that uh, zip code around Washington, D.C., where the defense contractors live in their 30 and 40 bedroom mansions with the attached uh, home for the, for the live-in staff, um, that is now the richest zip code in America. They've replaced, uh, you know, Hollywood's uh, uh, Beverly Hills uh, zip code. So I'm with you, Robert. Uh, but, see, what they've done is they've built a defense factory in every single one of the 435 congressional districts in America. So if any, literally any member of Congress, House or Senate, votes against a defense appropriation, odds are they're going to be cutting jobs in their own districts. And that's one of the reasons this thing has gotten so bloated. It's a, it was a very strategic move that they started doing after Eisenhower's Beware of the military-industrial complex speech in December of 1961, his farewell address when, when Eisenhower said that, that was immediately followed by the defense industry throughout the 60s and 70s, built, strategically building 
factories in congressional districts. No mistake. And, and you know, the, they, they, are, they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing, Robert. And they are getting richer than sin. I mean, they are just like, roll. And we're talking trillions of dollars, at least $5 trillion in Afghanistan and probably the same in, in uh, Iraq. I mean, we were we flew so much American cash over there that you could see the pallets filled with shrink-wrapped hundred-dollar bills from outer space. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Now more GIs were smuggling heroin back into the United States. During the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, some of the corrupt GIs were smuggling $100 bills back into the United States. Mark Taylor Canfield in Seattle. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Good, Tom. Last week marked the 10th anniversary of the Occupy Wall Street movement. So I participated in an online conference with Professor Stephanie Luce, who's the co-author of the current article in the Nation magazine about that movement. But my claim to fame was that during that movement in Seattle, I led some folks down to Pike Place Market and burned my Bank of America card. And the reason I did that is because I'd seen the images of uh, young men burning their draft cards in Viet- during the Vietnam War, and I thought that would be a very powerful image. Mm-hmm. So by the end of the day, hundreds of people had cut up their cards and uh, Bank a- America and Chase cards, and the photo of me ended up being published in the Washington Post. And very cool, Mark. On CBS News. Good so, But I wanted to... I wanted to set the record straight, though. Oh, yeah, so millions of dollars were divested from those major banks during that movement. Mm. Um, but I wanted to set the record straight, though, that long before the folks gathered at Zuccotti Park in New York City, folks were already occupying state houses and capitals in Wisconsin and in other states in opposition to the budget cuts to education and public services, those austerity measures, right? right. So in Olympia, Washington, people occupied the state capitol here for six days, and they called themselves Occupy Washington. And that was before what happened in Zuccotti Park. And by the way, I was arrested during those protests and uh, won a major class action civil rights lawsuit against the Washington State Patrol because of a, a you know, violation of the freedom of the press because of my arrest there. Wow. But I just want to thank everybody who went out there and, you know, camped in the parks and marched in the streets to bring these progressive populist values to the mainstream because now we have these movements like the Bernie Sanders campaign for president and my friend and Congressman Pramila Jayapal and Shama Swan, our Democratic Socialist City Council member here, who I consider to kind of all be Occupy candidates because they are um, still promoting those same values about, you know, hey, okay, we bailed out the rich folks. How about the middle class and the poor folks? We're still waiting for that bailout, Joe. Yeah, I think we're still in the same boat. Yeah, well, and and you know, the, the his three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation package would go a long way toward fulfilling those promises, but you've got uh, two Democratic senators that just don't want it to happen. Sadly. Well, I call them Demopublicans because they're not really Democrats. They're actually, I think, Republicans in Democratic clothing, or maybe you could call them. I think they're just corrupt Democrats. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't think you have to you have to conflate them with the. I mean, the entire Republican Party is corrupt. It's become a, a massive, yeah. you know, grifter program, and 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 that's that creates its own little cycle where you know the, the you get a lot of grifters in the Republican Party, and it drives out the honest politicians who just you know disagree with you and me on policy, 
And once they're gone, there's a vacuum there and more grifters come in to fill it. And that, this is what we've seen since Reagan, you know, the first professional uh, grifter politician president in, in my lifetime, certainly. Uh, like I said, Nixon yeah, was just a routine crook. It used to be the scam artists in, you know, on the frontier in cities like Denver you had to watch out for. Now it's the politicians. But I wanted to yeah. give you a breaking story, too. 2,000 construction workers, the Carpenters Union, uh, is on strike in Seattle and across Washington State because those guys and girls are not making enough money to even live in the cities where they work. Right. So they're asking for better pensions, higher wages. So $15 an hour is not enough to live in Seattle right now, folks, even though it, that whole movement started here. So 2,000 people out on strike right now in Seattle. Wow, that's great. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for the update. Mark Taylor Canfield out of Seattle. Thomas in Dartmouth, Mass. Hey, Thomas, what's up? Good afternoon, Mr. Hartman. Hey. Several years ago, I was driving in my truck listening to, listening to you on Sirius Satellite, and when you went to a commercial break, a right-wing commercial played during your show, which I called into your show and spoke to the producer and informed them of that. Mm -hmm. Having heard that, it gave me an idea, which I've been using now for close to a decade. You and I will both agree that right-wing radio is probably one of the greatest assets the right has because people are at work listening to the radio people are commuting listening to the radio listening to the propaganda oh yeah they've got long. two things they've got citizens united so so billionaires will fund their campaigns and then they've got right-wing radio on 15 1500 radio stations and now two or three hundred spanish language right-wing stations all across the country yeah i'm with you okay so here's what i've done what i've done i use their idea against them how when so? you're talking right-wing radio, when you're talking right-wing radio, you have to understand that there are major, major players, which I won't even bother mentioning the name, but a lot of those radio stations are hosted by local hosts. Right. And so what I have done is all politics is local. As a progressive, I call into those local hosts and debate hosts but also at the same time being conscious of the fact that there are people listening. Yeah. And I take a lot of the information that you give me and preach. And I've had people come up to me in public who recognize my voice locally and tell me, hey, you know what? I don't agree with everything you're saying, but you sure do make a lot of sense. So <laughs> That's great. I, but what I've also done, sir, and not, not a, this is not a lie, I actually tanked a Republican candidate for governor in the state of Rhode Island. I tanked his campaign. I was on the air with him for 45 minutes. They held me over two commercial breaks. At the end of the conversation, he was, he's a former Marine, Jawhead. He was threatening to meet me in a parking lot and take my lunch, and I invited him to meet me anywhere he wanted to. Wow. He literally pulled out of the campaign a few days later. Wow. So what I'm, the point I want to make to you, sir, is understanding how powerful radio really is, because the spoken word is truly powerful. We, we know this as a historian. I am, I, I, because of you, I've become an economics major. Because of you, I've become a history major. Because of you, I've become a tax, pol tax policy major. I have been studying all of these things for 20 years and amassed all this knowledge. And what I have done is use this knowledge to plant seeds of doubt in the listener's head. 
So I implore you to continue educating your listeners, and I implore your listeners to do what I've been doing. Don't call into the big boys. Call into your local conservative political talk radio station and challenge the host directly with knowledge and information and data. It is highly effective. I have tanked more than one campaign at the local level. I remember uh, I was also part of the Deval Patrick campaign when he was running for governor, and I chased at the time, his Republican candidate, Charlie Baker, throughout the state, the campaign would call me and tell me, hey, he's going to be on such and such a radio station at 5 o'clock. I would be waiting there like a telephone terrorist for them to pick up the line, and I would challenge the candidate directly on what they were talking about. Yeah, I, I, I would not call myself a terrorist, shooting. Thomas. I mean, well, I'm I mean, an evangelist. I, 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 know, I understand what you're saying. But, <laughs> but I get what you're saying. What, what the, the point I'm trying to make is this, is that we do not have the financial wherewithal to buy 15,000 radio stations as progressives because we don't have billionaires funding us. So what we need to do is use their greatest weapon against them. Yeah. No, I'm with you. And, I, and you're not the only person who listens to this program who does that. And by the way, it's not like I'm, you and I are trying to sabotage our political opponents. On this program, if somebody calls in and says, I'm a conservative and I want to disagree with Tom or I want to set him straight or I want to argue this point, um, you know, Joyce has standing orders, as it were, and she's, you know, we're all enthusiastic about this. That person goes on the air first, right? Anytime, any, you know, if, if you can prove that I'm wrong, if, if, you know, you're conservative and you want to and you want to try to demonstrate that I've got something wrong or it's, you know, the, the progressive position is full of beans, please have at it. Give it a try. But most of these conservatives, that's like you said, don't go after the big boys. They, they simply you won't get past the call screener. And and, exactly. the, and and the only liberals that they will put on the air are the ones that are, are extraordinarily inarticulate. They can't form their thoughts well. They, they're fumbling around. Um, they sound demented, or they sound like they're, they're teenagers, or, or, or they have really thick accents, right, of some kind. I mean, that's about the only kind of liberals you'll hear actually getting past the call screeners into conservative shows. Um, I'm Actually, if I, could, if I could add one thing real quick, sure. talking about what you're just talking about right now. At the local level, they're looking for listeners. And if you put on, if, they, if you go on the air and challenge them and do a good job, they will put you to the front of the line because capitalists need money. And how do you get money is by getting listeners. And you actually make the show better. And yeah. they know this. They, oh, and I know it, too. Like I, that's why I, that's one of the reasons I want conservatives on here. You know, Vladimir Lenin said the definition of a capitalist is the guy who will sell you the rope he's going to use to hang you. Thomas, thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. 
Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'll be picking up your phone calls in just a moment. I wanted to just ask the question that Bernie Sanders is asking. We've got these so-called conservative or moderate or whatever you want to call them, Democrats. I would call them corrupted, but, you know, use the words you want, who are saying three and a half trillion dollars, that's too much money, even over 10 years, even $350 billion, we can't do that. So Bernie is saying, okay, you don't like it. You know, we started at six trillion. We got it down to three and a half trillion. What do you want to take out? What do you want to delete? What part of this program do you want to do away with? Do you want to do away with the climate action? You got you stripped all the climate change stuff out of the one trillion dollar bill. So we put it in the three and a half trillion dollar bill. You want to get rid of the climate change stuff? Is that, you know, and, you know, not end global warming? How about uh, subsidizing childcare so that uh, particularly low-income families and uh, single mothers can go back to work? You want to not subsidize childcare or universal pre-K so that all across the United States, young kids can get a you know a really good head start, as it were, on both education and to give their parents some you know an opportunity to get to work. Do you want to uh, not offer seniors dental, vision, and uh, hearing benefits? Is that it? Is that what you want to take out? I mean, which, which is it? What's it going to be? He said, we have already made a significant compromise. Poll after poll tells me and tells you that what we're trying to do is enormously popular. Every single issue has widespread support, not only from Democrats, but from Republicans and independents. So what is it that they want to take out? Right, we, we know the bottom line. What they don't want to do is they don't want to pay for it by raising taxes on rich people. And we're talking about raising taxes back. We're not even talking about raising them back to where they were before Trump came into office. When Trump came into office, the top corporate tax rate was 35%. Right now it's 21%. In this bill, they're going to raise it up to 26%. And they're bragging about that? It's not even going to go back to where it was when Trump came in, and Trump lowered it. I mean, you know, it, it, and that was lower than when George W. Bush came into office, which obviously was lower than when Ronald Reagan came into office. So there's that, number one. Number two, Ron DeSantis is pushing this whole thing to the point of crazy. He fired his uh, Surgeon General in Florida, who was an actual Surgeon General guy, and replaced him with a guy who promotes ivermectin and uh, was a big fan of hydroxychloroquine and, and, and thinks that we just need herd immunity. Let everybody get sick. And yeah, you know, 50, 60,000 people will die. Two, three, 400,000 people will be permanently disabled, but, but we'll have herd immunity. Won't that be great? 
And then he, he does this public event and invites this guy to speak. His name is Charles Craig. He's 40 years old. He's a handyman from Apollo Beach. And he says, and again, DeSantis is standing there and doesn't stop him and doesn't say, no, no, you got it wrong or anything like that. He, he says that the uh, Biden administration is trying to keep ivermectin out of your hands. He said, and I quote, to think that they're limiting the access to this is sickening. It works. In the beginning, hydroxychloroquine worked. They grabbed it. More recently, ivermectin worked. Now they're grabbing that. What's actually happening in Florida is that some of the feed stores are saying, we're not going to sell ivermectin for you to take because A, you know, you might end up in the hospital. I tweeted a couple, you know, last week, an article in the Oregonian, our local newspaper, our statewide newspaper, about how there are five people in the hospital here in Portland because they took horse paste, they took ivermectin. And it is the, uh, it, it is the number one thing coming into our poison control. And, and it can't just be Oregon. So, you know, that's happening, but, you know, there's no Biden administration plot to, to snatch the ivermectin, any more than there was to snatch the hydroxychloroquine. It's crazy. One last thing I want to share with you. This is from, uh, uh, oh, by the way, on, on uh, Bernie's $3.5 trillion plan, 17 Nobel Prize winning economists, 17 Nobel Prize winners economists have come out and said this is a they they, they said that uh, there should be a 2.9 trillion dollar tax increase to pay for the program the new rates uh well i'm reading about it i'm not reading but uh, the, the, it's just these are and, and in fact they are all currently employed as professors at the nation's top universities they refuted arguments made by republicans and moderate democrats that the massive human infrastructure bill um, which would provide funding to expand education, health care, child care, and climate efforts is far too expensive. So there's that. But finally, Dr. Eric Feigelding, who's a regular on this program, just tweeted this this morning. And it's really worth highlighting. In fact, uh, during the next break, I think I'll go in and find his uh, tweet and retweet it. I, I printed it this morning. I should have retweeted it, too. He tweets, let this sink in. When eight infants die, three million pillows are immediately recalled. Did you see this? There, there's this recall on these pillows because uh, babies can suffocate in them. Eight kids have died, eight infants. So he says, nobody says, but, but we need to learn to live with pillows to suffocate babies. Meanwhile, 480 kids have died of COVID-19. An astounding 20 died last week alone writes Dr. Eric Feigelding. And I mean, just, you put it in that context, he goes, he uh, quotes, over 100 children have died from COVID-19 or roughly three children a day just in the last five weeks in the U.S. That time period coincides with the forced reopening of K through 12 schools and college campuses throughout the country. And I would add the forced reopening without masks in red states all across the country. That's how bad it is. So, uh, picking up your phone calls. Mike in Redding, Pennsylvania. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hi, Tom. Uh, I believe I know how the Republicans are going to spin this Arizona fraud. It. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, because the vote tally was different from what the official results were, they're going to say there was voter fraud, and therefore we need all these voter suppression bills. 
Yeah, I think you're probably right, Mike. Um, they found um, what? I've, I've thrown yeah, the article away like now, but something, yeah, something in the neighborhood of uh, 300 extra votes for Joe Biden that didn't yeah. get counted correctly, and about 80 votes for uh, Donald Trump that didn't get counted correctly, which right. is, you know, meaningless. You know, I was, it was, it was multiple exactly, millions of people voted in, in Arizona. Right, but uh, just one vote being off, that's enough to get them to say, hey, there's fraud out there. There you go, there you go. Although maybe the uh, maybe the GOP, uh, particularly, uh, what was her name, Karen Finn, I think, is you know the head of the, the Republicans in the Senate in Arizona, the one who pushed yeah, through the, sure. the authorization. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that there's going to be some serious egg on face uh, 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 remediation <laughs> going on of some kind. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, any logical person's going to realize what it was. Yeah, yeah, this thing was a scam. And, and, and it's costing the state millions and millions of dollars, or the county, Maricopa County, exactly. millions of dollars. Well, in the state as well. Mike, thanks for the call. Paul in Kansas. Hey, Paul, where in Kansas are you? Uh, actually, I'm in Wisconsin now. But Wisconsin? You still live in. Yes. <laughs> um, well, uh, about the uh, Haitian crisis at the border uh, that you talked about, mm -hmm. uh, I spent the last three weeks with a Haitian guy who was constantly on the phone with family, and uh, he had a couple of people that he was trying to get up this way, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, he lives in St. Louis now. But uh, they were paying at every border that they crossed from Brazil on up for passage to get through and the motor guards basically about 10,000 10, people uh at $10,000 per person by the time they got all the way through. Wow. So, I mean, this isn't just a bunch of That's a million dollars. Uh, poor 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 people with no money trying to get up here. This is people who are, you know, being helped by their family in the United States and hey, right. wherever to try to get through and their their money's taken by people who obviously had it timed out so that they'd all arrive at the same time so that it would be a crisis and they wouldn't get across. Right. Actually, I think that's and, 10 million if I'm doing math right. So you're suggesting, that, I mean, this is what I was raising earlier is, you know, we see this uh, high level senior advisor to Donald Trump, uh, this Miller guy, not Stephen, but another, another Miller, uh, Jason, um, was uh, detained mm -hmm. by Brazilian authorities about three weeks ago and then, uh, surprise, surprise, uh, 10,000, 15,000 uh, Haitian refugees from Brazil show up on our southern border all at the same time. I mean, you know, setting aside the larger issues of our policies with regard to Haiti and, and the crisis that's going on in Haiti right now, it just seems to me like there's a, there's a hand in this that is not uh, refugees trying to do the best for themselves, that somebody is steering this process. Although, you know, yeah, and, I realize how paranoid that's that trying to. Go ahead. The media is really misdirecting this by, you know, saying that it's all about the recent crisis. Yeah. Because, you know, I, since I had this guy at my disposal to ask, and, you know, I asked him, you know, it, did it have to do with the assassination of the president? Did it have to do with the recent earthquake? He said, no, they've been in these other countries for quite some time for years and and all of a sudden this opportunity came up to get across right so someone's engineering it yeah i i, I agree i agree and uh you know which doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing the humane thing and you know etc but paul thank you for the call it's the tom hartman program
helping you win the water cooler wars. If you're back to the water cooler, <laughs> or, or like we have uh, the porcelain, what are those called? Jugs? Pots? I don't know. But the big water bottle sits in. Anyhow, we do not have wars around it, though. Although sometimes there's a line, right? I want to make some coffee. Today we're reading from DeRay McKesson's new book, On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope, which is nice. It opens with a quote from James Baldwin, the impossible is the least that one can demand. DeRay McKesson writes, I learned hope the hard way. It was a hot day in St. Louis County in September 2014, and I'd spent the majority of the afternoon sitting on the floor of the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department headquarters. At 9 o'clock in the morning, 20 of us had filed in and plopped down in four rows in the center of the station. The police began to gather around us as hundreds of our fellow protesters turned the corner and were now standing outside the building demanding to get in. When it looked like the officers might forcibly remove us, everyone began to link arms, everyone but me. It was my role to record and interpret as much as possible everywhere we protested so that we could consistently tell the truth to the outside world. I sat in the front of our stacked rows, unlinked. I was trying to capture as much as I could on my phone and tweet about it in real time. I wanted to be able to tell the story of the only successful sit-in of a police department since the protest began. We were repeatedly told to move, and we refused. It wasn't long before the officer's growing impatience turned to action. I heard the screaming before I realized that we'd been completely surrounded. It all happened so fast. I looked over and saw a mother trying to stop an officer from driving his thumb into the pressure point behind her daughter's ear. And when I looked up, there was an officer standing directly over me. She told us that we needed to leave immediately. Again, we refused to move. And then she rested her hand on her taser. I'll never forget how time stopped as I watched her move her hand from her taser to her gun, almost like it happened in slow motion. Suddenly, I was on my back, gliding across the industrial floor as an officer dragged me to the entrance of the building by my ankles. Why are you doing this, I asked, as a second officer twisted my arm behind my back. His face fell flat, like he snapped out of the hostility, and instead of a verbal reply, he just let my arm go, picked me up, and pushed me out the door. It was one of two moments of late when death has felt near. And when death is near, so too is the question of how? How did I get myself into this situation? Should I have made a different choice? I live off the beaten path in Baltimore City in a house that people don't wander to. If you come to the house, you have made the decision to be at the house. I've been using ride-sharing apps since I totaled my car in the protests of 2014, and I was using one on this day. I saw the car in the driveway, and I paused. But I was already home, so I felt like I had to get out of the car. And when I got out, the driver and the other car got out, too. And in that moment, the calmness came over me like it did in the St. Louis Police Metro Police Department. I've received many death threats over the years. The FBI has visited my house. Cities have hired surveillance companies that have deemed me a serious threat. And a movie theater was evacuated because I received a threat that I'd be shot during a screening. But none of those things shook me like that day when the car was in front of the house after work. The driver walked toward me and I just stood still. I can't even say that I was afraid in that moment. I was still and focused, a stillness and focus that I've only known a few times. I followed his hands and body with my eyes, waiting. 
ready, anxious. He reached out his hand and gave me a packet of papers. I looked down and realized that I'd just been served with a lawsuit. I was sued personally by five police officers, three in Dallas and two from Baton Rouge. I hadn't been physically served in any of the lawsuits except this one, on the day the guy showed up in my driveway. After he handed me the papers, he asked to take a photo, and with that, he was on his way. These moments forced me to think about the why of this work, the fundamental question of whether it is worth the costs. We all know the risks of protesting, and we choose to meet them head on. There are so many times in the early months that I was met with an almost paralyzing fear. But as I watched the officer in the police station, I realized that, for what felt like the first time, I wasn't afraid. It was in losing the fear of death that I began to understand faith and hope. Faith is the belief that certain outcomes will happen, and hope is the belief that certain outcomes can happen. So when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, he is speaking from a place of faith. He's confident that justice is inevitable, even if it may come in another lifetime. Faith is often rooted in the belief in a higher power in God. Hope, on the other hand, would mean reframing this statement to say the arc of the moral universe is long and it will bend toward justice if we bend it. Faith is rooted in certainty. Hope is rooted in possibility. And they both require their own different types of work. The work of faith is to actively surrender to forces unseen, to actively acknowledge that what is desired may come about, but by means you will never know. And that is difficult. That faith is rooted in certainty does not mean that it never wavers. Indeed, it is not a static belief, but one based on trust. And one's trust is not easily conferred. Hope is the belief that our tomorrows can be better than our todays. Hope is not magic. Hope is work. I am not certain that a new world, one of equity and justice, will emerge. But I am certain that it can emerge. I've heard people speak of hope in rather different ways. The first is with statements like, I hope that we win, or I hope my loved one diagnosed with incurable cancer will somehow make it. The book, On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope by DeRay McKesson. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.